My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this morning, like I said, we're in week four, jumping into kind of the conclusion. We'll conclude next week uh, during Christmas Eve, but kind of the conclusion of this story. And I just want you to reflect upon this question. What comes to mind when you think of the title Father? What comes to mind when you think of the title or relationship Father? Just sit for it for a minute. Because here's the reality. We all think of someone or something when we think of father. We sit on a spectrum of experiences and relationships and for some of us baggage and for some of us celebratory things. Because for some of us, when I say the word father, we think of distance or brothers of us, we think of joyous moments and investments of impact and we think of the ways that they've been present. For some of us, maybe we've had seasons where presence was there and then seasons where it wasn't. Maybe we've had seasons of joy and maybe seasons of pain. The reality is, when I say the word, the title, Father, all of us have an image that comes to mind. But why? Why do all of us have an almost emotional, maybe for some of us, a physical reaction to that title? I think it's because... The investment of a father is unlike any other. If you look at statistics negatively, you can look up statistics of a father who wasn't present and how it negatively impacts kids. But just on the other side, you can look at statistics of a father being present and the positive impact that that has inside of a family and for kids. But I think even more than that, even more than the physical providing and needing, I think at a core, deep level, we long for a father. And I'm not just talking about a mentor or a man that happens to live in the same home as you or even the word dad. I think all of us desire a father and in one way, shape, or form, we pursue that, whether through a father or another avenue. This is what Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, writes, Jesus' whole life in preaching had only one aim, to reveal this inexhaustible, unlimited, motherly and fatherly love of his God and to show the way to let that love guide every part of our daily lives. It's fascinating. As I was reading through Henry Nouwen's book, how relatable that was. I never thought of it that way. What if we walked through the teachings of Jesus, walked through what Jesus did, looked to who Jesus was and saw the reflection of the heavenly father. What if the point Jesus was trying to make was that one aim of showing us who God is as our father and creating the picture of that? Because I believe each and every one of us long for it Maybe, just maybe, Jesus knew that in a very deep way. 
And the way he communicated and interacted with God was through the lens of a father. Today, what we're going to see is this. Jesus wants us to know that there is a father who will never leave us or forsake us. And that ultimately, that father, our heavenly father, invites each and every one of us home. We're in this series called Prodigal God. We're in week four. Next week, we'll wrap it up at Christmas. We've been looking at the most famous, arguably the most famous story Jesus teaches and shares, the prodigal son story. And inside of the story, what we're looking for is not just facts about the story, but how do I relate to the story and where is Jesus inside of the story, which next week we'll really dive into at Christmas Eve. We've provided resources on the wall. If you want to grab one of the series guides, you're not too late to do that. And today, what we want to do is this. We want to simply just wrap up kind of the main crux of the story with one of the main characters, if not the main character of the story, the father. This is what I'd have you write down. The father, he welcomes me home and celebrates with us. The father welcomes home and celebrates with us. The father in this story is meant to point us to someone. Just like the younger brother and the older brother point us to ourselves and maybe reflect upon ourselves in light of that, the father ultimately points us to see our heavenly father inside of this story. And if you have missed the first maybe three weeks or one of the first three weeks, I would challenge you to go back and listen to it on Spotify, on our podcast, on our website, because today I'm going to jump right in. And those first three weeks built upon each other and today builds upon them. And so if you're lost in the context, maybe one of those first three weeks will get you caught up to where the story is at as we jump in today. Verse 11, Luke 15, this is where Jesus is at. Jesus continued. He had told two stories already. He's telling it to a very specific audience. This is the third story that has similar vibes to the first two. And he goes like this, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Here's what I'd have you write down. The first thing is this, and then we'll, we'll go through it. The father freely loves. The father freely loves. Here's what's interesting about this story. In this story, both sons... Both sons are trying to earn the father's love or feel the need to earn the father's love. One son is trying to work harder and harder and harder. It's the older son. The second son or the younger son, he believes he can't achieve it, so he runs. It's interesting. One son decides to work harder. The other son decides to run farther because they believe they have to earn the father's love inside of the relationship. And the father continually points to the reality that all he wants them to do is abide in his home of love. And yet, listen here, they're existing in a prison of fear. The father keeps inviting them into this relationship, this picture of a home that's nice, it's beautiful, it's spacious, relationship with him where love exists and the two sons are living not out of this picture but they're living out of a prison of fear a fear that they have to earn the father's love to be in relationship with the father 
Like I said, one runs further away from the father because he believes he can't do it. I'm not like the older brother. I can't provide. I, I'm not even like the father maybe. I, I've done all this stuff or I can't relate and I'm not fit to be in this family. But the older son, the older son, he may not have run, but he exists in a prison of fear, even though his proximity to the father physically is close. Because the prison he exists in is a fear that if he isn't doing enough and he isn't providing enough and he isn't showing the father enough, then the father and the relationship with the father isn't there. And I think about this setting and this scene in a unique way. Because the father continually is inviting them into this home of love, this place of love and care. And they are existing in a very different place internally. Fear distances us from relationship. Relationship is not healthy when it's driven by fear. And that's what the brothers, the sons were existing in. They were existing in this place of fear that their minds were going to, I have to earn it or do enough for it or try to accomplish it on my own. And they were trying to earn something they could only receive. What's interesting is I think about this story in scenes, like it's a movie or maybe a TV show. I think about the first scene kind of like this because the father, he would have been wealthy in the story. A lot going for him. The fact that he has an inheritance and the fact that we see a party at the end of the story, he had a lot going for him. And probably the house would have looked similar in that kind of day and age if you equate it to the first century. Big, having lots of wealth. And they're standing there in the front yard and the younger son comes up to the father and says, I want what's owed me. I want what's coming to me and I don't want you. Just get yourself there in the scene. Put them in this place. Think about what the father is processing as he hears this from the younger son. The younger son, out of fear, is driving further away from the father. And the father is standing there. He's hearing this from the younger son. And, and he's listening. And I can only imagine what's going through his mind. And then the younger son says, well, you're going to give it to me? And the father does. And everybody in the audience listening to Jesus' story would have been like, What? in the world is going on. What are you talking about, Jesus? The father gave this to him? What do you mean? And I understand where they're coming from. Because when I hear the story, I'm like, what is happening? Because here's how I would have reacted. I would have said either one of two things. Get in here or get out of here. Get in here is I'm trying to retain the relationship you do what I want you to do. You live out how I want you to live it out. I'm trying to control the relationship. The other version is you get out of here. You want my resources. You want my stuff. You want my money. And then you're just going to take it and do it. And in that circumstance, get out of here. I'm just going to boot you with nothing. And in that circumstance, I'm trying to control my resources. And what's fascinating inside of this story is the father 
doesn't do either of those. He gives the younger son the inheritance. Why is that important to note? Because of this, the father cares more about the relationship than having control. The father cares more about the relationship he has with both of his sons than control over the relationship or over the resources that are rightfully his. God's love is not defined by what he gets, but what he gives. God's love is not defined by what he gets, it's by what he gives. That inside of this story, the father, as he's watching the son pack up his bags and leave, he's standing there in the front yard watching his son walk down the road, is demonstrating to both sons simultaneously that you cannot earn my love. He demonstrates to the younger son, I care less about my resources. I care more about you. I'm going to fight for you. I care about you. I want you to know that you cannot earn this. You can't even run from it. I want relationship with you. And simultaneously, I don't know when the older brother would have found out about the younger brother. He would have walked in and said, what's going on with Jimmy? That's like, he's gone. What? I gave him my inheritance. What? The older son would have been baffled. Well, he didn't work for it. You haven't passed away yet. What are you talking about? The father simultaneously drives the point home. My love is free. <coughs> My love can't be worked for. My love cannot be earned. He freely gives the younger son his inheritance because the father is more concerned about relating and interacting in a free relationship than an earned accomplishment. The father doesn't care about his stuff, and he's not going to try to control the relationship. He wants more than anything for his two sons to understand his love at a deep, unyielding level. And so he lets his son go with the resources that he has. And I think one of the reasons that Jesus says the younger son comes to his senses is because of this next quote. This is what Henry Nouwen says inside of his book. But if I'm able to look at the world with the eyes of God's love and discover that God's vision is not that of a stereotypical patriarch, but rather that of an all-giving, forgiving father who does not measure out his love to his children according to how well they behave, then I quickly see that my only true response can be deep gratitude. This is what he's saying. God's love is not something you can earn based on your behavior or your work ethic or how well you do. His love is all giving and forgiving. And when you recognize that a deep well of gratitude starts to form inside of your life, I think the younger son, when Jesus says he came to his senses, had that well there that he kind of pulled into in his deepest need and recognized the father was different than what he was receiving in the world. That this well of gratitude, it wells up because of the love that I've experienced. And as I have a well of gratitude to pull from, I start to live out love towards others. Because I'm no longer concerned about living for love, but living from love. When I start, sons missed it. I've started to get the point that Jesus is trying to make, but both sons missed it. They were trying to earn something they could only receive. And what's interesting is this. 
is that when we look at this passage and look at the Father's response, one of the statements that comes to mind is perfect love. Perfect love is all giving and forgiving, and we see that play out in 1 John 4. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, writes this, There is no fear in love. If fear exists in a relationship that you have, it is not loving. It is based on something else. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, has to do with a prison, has to do if I'm, if I'm worthy enough, if I'm good enough, if I'm going to be enough. And if I'm not, what's going to come back on me? And it's a punishment that I put onto myself, a prison that I exist in in and of myself. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear exists where love is not. Fear exists about who I am, what I'm supposed to do when I don't understand love. What's interesting about this passage is this. I used to read this, have read this. It's not wrong to read it this way, but I would read it in the lens of myself. How is it applicable to me? Perfect love drives out fear, right? Fear of who I am and what I'm supposed to do and the relationships around me, perfect love, right? We always know that it only comes from God. But have you ever read it from the lens of God? Have you ever put God in the seat of the application to this? God does not love out of fear. God is not driven by fear. His perfect love is fearless. His perfect love drives out fear and is not driven by fear. <coughs> he does not love out of fear of losing us or losing his stuff. It's interesting. God's love is way deeper and more profound than we give it credit. Because his love is not based on a fear of losing someone or something. How do I know that? Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we see the fall of man and woman. Sin enters into the world. Everything up to that point was awesome. Relation, perfection. They were walking with God in the garden in the cool of day, right? Man and woman, Adam and Eve, were existing inside of this relationship in a profound way. Until Genesis 3, the serpent comes in and deceives them. You can become like God. You can do what God is doing. You could be him in an essence. You can sit in the seat that he's sitting in. Do you really think that God doesn't want you to eat from there? And he starts to question what God's love for them. He starts to question the trust they have in him. And they eat of the fruit. And all of a sudden, their eyes are open in sin enters into the world and fallenness. And all of a sudden they realize they're naked. Here's what's interesting about the story. If I was in the seat God was in, illustratively, I would have ran in and tried to save the day. I'd try to control the relationship. What's interesting is what we see. God doesn't run in and try to control Adam and Eve in that. He doesn't come in and say, get out of this way. I'll handle it. I'll figure it out. I, oh, gosh, you messed it up and I'll figure, I'll get it all right in this moment. You, you got to just sit behind me and follow along. God does. Secondly, he doesn't try to control his resources either. God does not. God does not look over and say, how could you mess up my world? 
What does God do? In that moment, God covers them when they were naked. First things that God does is ask, where are you at? And he covers them with animal skin, his grace. And then we see quickly after that, he promises a return through a savior who will crush the serpent's head. God loves freely, all giving and forgiving. And in the beginning, he even did this. God does not step in and control the situation or complain about his world being destroyed. He covers them in redemption and promises the return. The father knows that perfect love looks different and interacts differently. And perfect love only exists from the father because fear doesn't exist. He loves not out of a fear of who he is and what if and what will people think. He loves perfectly for the relationship and care of that. And this scene, I imagine, as any good TV show does, it always ends at the climactic points. The first scene in this story would have cut at that image of the house, the father standing in the grass, the son at distance off, walking away from the father. I put myself in the father's shoes briefly because I think about what would it have been like to stand here and watch the son walk away? What would that have felt like? Would it have been tormenting? Would it have been brutal? Would he have been sobbing? Would he have been confident? Because all he cares about in that scene is the son. And he cares about the son freely running into his love. But here's the reality. All of us can relate to the sons. Because I think all of us at one point or another, or maybe even today, live in a prison of fear. Maybe it's relationally, financially, maybe it's with all sorts of things, but what if it's spiritually? We live in a place of fear that am I enough? Have I done enough? And for some of us, we've run farther. For some of us, we're trying to work harder to get out of the prison to accomplish what only we can receive. So I think the question for us is this. Do I see my relationship with the Father from a prison of fear or a home of love? Do I see my relationship with the Father from a prison of fear or a home of love? And if you're sitting in that prison today, the Father wants you to return more than anything because he cares about you and desires a relationship with you. And that's what we see in the next scene. Because in the next scene, the younger son, he goes off, he spends everything on wild living, and then a famine hits. And inside of that moment, he comes to his senses. Like I said, I think he is recalling the things the father has told him. And he says, I need to go back because the father can only do for me what I cannot do for myself. And he heads back home. And in verse 20, we see this interaction. So he got up and went to his father, the younger son, and he ran to his son. Through way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is what I would have you write down. I've used this before. 
The father in this story, he sees suffering, not stupidity. The father sees suffering, not stupidity. Here's reality. Both the younger and the older sons have their moments in this story, right? One son says to the father, I don't want a relationship with you. I want your stuff. And he heads out. The other son, at the end of the story, says, the younger son came back. He threw a party for him. I want to come into that party. I'm not having it. Both sons have their moments inside the story. And it would be easy for us to think about the father in the story and to sit there and say, it'd be easy for the father to look upon these sons and say, they acting dumb or they're acting stupid. It could be easy for us to assume, especially in that culture, the first century culture where you disrespect or dishonor the father, wrath was laid on you. It wasn't good. It was easy to assume that the father would belittle or guilt them or shame them inside of the story, but he doesn't, in particular with the younger son. Here's what's fascinating. I think inside of this story, I wonder about the next scene. And then the next scene as the younger son returns, he returns home to a site that would have been very much like this, a porch. And inside of him returning home, I wonder if he would have thought the father would be there. Because it's really easy, it's really easy to think that the father was on the back deck of dismissal instead of the porch of welcome. This is how I would have interacted with it. You're going to do that to me? I'm going to go back here with my buddies, the ones that really care about me, get a barbecue going, we'll just forget you. And we'll just kind of enjoy the moments because you don't want to have anything to do with me. And that's not at all where the father was sitting. Did you read it there? No one had to tell the father that the son was returning. He noticed and saw from a distance that the, the son was coming home. And I imagine the son would have been shocked to see his father awaiting, his father sitting, his father longing for him to return home. The father, so pulled with love, ends up running out to meet the son. And he meets him before he could even get to the porch. And he throws his arms around him with such compassion and such love. Here's the reality. When I see stupid, it leads me to dismiss. The father doesn't, though. The father sees suffering, which leads him to dive in. What's interesting about this story, not just with the younger son, is that the father runs after both sons. Did you notice that? He doesn't do one thing for one son and one thing for another. He runs after both sons. One son is coming home after spending everything his father gave him. He has nothing to give the father, and yet the father meets him halfway and brings him in. But he also runs after the older son. When the older son says, I don't want to come in, I don't want to be a part of this party, <clears throat> and I don't want to join you in this celebration, the father runs after him. And the father is led into their suffering because both sons are suffering. We might just see it as stupid. They're suffering in his lifestyle. The younger son, he was suffering from his lifestyle, his wild living, and pleasure. 
And the older son was suffering from anger and resentment and pride. The prison of fear, what it ends up creating is it ends up creating a reliance on myself. At a spiritual level, when I am living in a prison of fear, I try to meet the needs that I cannot meet on my own by myself. And it always leaves me empty. And only a perfect love can fill that up. And the father, through the word of compassion, is driven to meet the sons. You know that word compassion, what it literally means is a gut-wrenching emotion. Your guts, your intestines are just twisting and turning for what you're seeing play out. So much so that it leads you to action. The father is twisting and turning inside because he's watching his sons suffer. And he has moved so much so to meet them where they're at, take them where they need to go. But what are they suffering? What are they missing? What the father knows is this, that the father knows what they are missing is living in his love. They're suffering from not existing in his love. That is the biggest thing that you and I can miss in our lives in particular, our spiritual lives. Fear drives us to believe I can get that in other ways and we end up suffering not just because of circumstances or people. We end up suffering most when we don't exist in the love of the Father full time. The Father runs to his sons freely loving and what I love about this image is he could care less what other people think. He does not fear what the sons are going to say to him, and he doesn't fear what anybody else thinks about him. He runs, which would not have been at all acceptable for a father to do in the first century, but he runs to the sons, doesn't care what anybody else thinks about him. He just wants them to know he loves them and forgives them and invites them in with his grace and his mercy. He sees suffering and he's moved to meet it. What I love about the image is this, as I think about that porch, you know, the father, he's rocking in the chair, probably thinking about the younger son, sees the younger son. What I love about the image is this, he doesn't stay on the porch. It's very easy to assume he stays on the porch and the son kind of comes up and how you doing? Oh, you know, this is this and that. The father runs, he hugs him, and he invites him in. He meets him halfway. And for some of you this morning, you come in here and you believe that you're stupid. Or you've been called stupid. Or you've done stupid things. And your life has been marked by believing that all you've existed in is stupidity. And you're walking down the road and what you have seen and maybe believe spiritually is this is that there's no one there on the porch to welcome me in. Because you've existed in that on an earthly level. Everybody's out back. They forgot about me. They don't want to spend time with me. They've dismissed me. They've called me stupid. They've said, get your act together. And there's nothing that I can do to be good enough. And you're walking down the road right now. And it doesn't matter if you're the younger brother or the older brother. It doesn't matter. All of us have believed it or thought it at one point. And you're wondering if the father is actually who I'm talking about. 
you're wondering if there's anybody that's going to be sitting in that chair because every one of your experiences has been the opposite. Let me tell you this, eyes up here. Let me tell you this. I've been wrestling with this this week in different ways. The Father, our Heavenly Father, is always waiting there. You don't have to second guess it. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to check yourself twice. Did I get all cleaned up enough? He's waiting there for you because it says he never leaves us or forsakes us. And he is so excited that you are returning and walking towards him. I love stories where I meet people and I'm like, how'd you come to know Jesus? And they're like, honestly, I don't know. It was crazy. It was nuts. It was this. And all of a sudden, I just, I just knew it. I felt it. I experienced it. And I ran into it. That is the father meeting you halfway down the road. He doesn't say, get all your crap together, get all your stuff together, get all cleaned up, and then meet me on the porch, and maybe I'll come out and address you. He is waiting with earnesty to meet you where you are at. For some of us this morning, we need to start to believe that the Father doesn't see us as stupid, but wants to embrace us in the suffering that we are experiencing. So the question I would ask is this, do I see myself and my relationship with the Father as a porch of welcome or a deck of dismissal? Do I believe that he's waiting and longing for my return or do I believe I have to do enough and provide enough and be good enough and look good enough to get his attention from the backyard? Thirdly, verse 22, fascinating how this story plays out. Father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The third thing I'd write down is this. The father covers with grace. The father covers with grace. I love it. The father meets us in our suffering and then he covers us with his grace. Because here's the reality. For both the younger and the older, and for all of us we can relate with this, both the younger and the older brothers, the sons, they tried to carry their guilt every step of the way. You notice that? Their MO was to carry and to settle it on their own terms and in their own way and try to figure it out. You know how I know that? Because first, the younger brother, he's coming. He gets wrapped up by the father. And if this was scene three, it would be the younger brother looking at the father, like standing here in a hug. And he's like, what do I do? I didn't anticipate this. Kind of like those awkward hugs. He's like, how do I go about this now? Wasn't the reaction I was anticipating. Father's like, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you returned. And he is having to process his plan, the younger brother is, to share with his father. And all of a sudden, he goes about it. Oh, Father, I'll be your servant. I'll work for you. I'll try to earn my way back in. I'll try to earn my place in the family again. And the father could care less. He doesn't care for the younger son to carry his guilt. The younger son is trying his hardest to put on a show, to put on an act, to put on something so that the father would accept him. But the father is covering him freely with grace. I imagine it like this. You ever have family come over for Thanksgiving or Christmas and they stay for multiple nights or multiple days or spending the night, right? And everybody comes in, you know, and they got their baggage. And if you're a good host... You ask them if you can take their luggage up to their room. They just traveled a long way. 
They just worked really hard. They got this baggage that weighs a lot. Let me take it up to your room. I'll show you where you are at. And inevitably, there's always one person in the family. These darn people. They look at you and say, don't worry about it. I got it. I can do it myself. I, can, I don't want you to carry this weight for me, right? I'm kind of like that too, right? There's always that one person. Literally, spiritually, we are all that one person. The Father, he's invited us in. He's inviting the return, the relationship. And we step into the home and he says, I have a robe for you. I have sandals for your, uh, a ring for your finger, sandals for your feet. And he says, let me take your bags. And all of us spiritually, look up here, all of us spiritually, we push against that. Because all of us, tend to believe that we need to carry our guilt and fix it on our own. We have our luggage of guilt instead of being clothed in the robe of grace that God offers us. And so we might see, we're like, yeah, he welcomed me in, this is great, but man, he can't fix that, or I can't put that on him, or I can't imagine that that's going to get fixed. And we always exist inside of trying to figure it out on our own. And inside of this scene, what happens is this, the son returns, <clears throat> the younger son returns, and he is lavished with love beyond what he knows what to do with. The younger son, his baggage is he stinks, he probably doesn't look great, and he just hung out with pigs for a long time. And he has nothing to give to the father. You notice that? He takes a third of the inheritance, wastes it, he has nothing to bring back. He's coming up with a plan to try to cover the guilt that he is experiencing inside of this. And he's walking with the father and he's trying to figure it out. And the father does what? He robes him with an identifier that is beyond our understanding. He robes him with grace, ultimately robes him with a new identity. The robe that he puts on the son would have signified family. What it was doing was twofold. He was not only identifying him with a new identity as my son. I'm robing you with the family robe, my robe that I'm going to put a, a, around you and you are my son, but I'm also going to cover all the junk and the mess and the sin and the shamefulness and the living that you existed in. The father did two things in one. The son doesn't have to do anything. Just freely accept the grace that's been given to him. For some of us, listen, listen, listen. For some of us, it's easy to see that first part. He graces us with a robe and called a son. But as a son, we're still trying to figure out how to get free of our guilt. We're trying to work a plan. And what the father wants us sons and daughters to know is I've covered it all in one through the work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. Because what's powerful about this image is the robe. What the robe signifies is there's a new identity. You are my son. You're not a servant. You were lost. Now you're found. You were dead. Now you're alive. And you didn't have to do a single thing for it. The younger son, he left better than he came back. Right? All of us would be like, we would have took the younger son before he left. Because the younger son came back with nothing. And the father says, I'm going to grace you with this robe that tells everybody, you're my son, no matter what you've done. Secondly, he gives him a ring. 
That ring would have been a family ring, this identifier of you are a part of this family and those siblings are your siblings. Those family members are your family members. You are a part of what's going on here. Then lastly, he put on sandals. And the sandals would have been a new purpose, a new purpose for the son to exist inside of this family with the purpose of resembling the father to others. What the father was doing is he's saying, you're covered. Stop carrying your guilt. I have covered you in my love and my grace. Ultimately, we see that for us through Jesus and what he's done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And the question that we all have to wrestle with is, do I see myself in the Father's home carrying my luggage of guilt or am I resting in the robe of grace? Listen, the, the Father's not promoting this son's living. He's not like, yeah, a boy, you became a man. I'll put the robe on you. That son is returning because he's in a deep sense of need. He knows exactly that he is desperate and bankrupt in every sort of way. And in that moment, the father doesn't applaud his lifestyle, but covers him in spite of it, accepts him in spite of it. Because as he embraces him in love, the son will start to work from love, not for love. That brother, he ran from it because he was scared he couldn't do enough for it. And the father is proving to him that there's no amount of things that you can do for my love. It just exists because I love you. For some of us, we need to give the luggage of our guilt to the Father and rest in the robe of grace that he has for us. Then lastly is this. In verse 23, we see the story continue in a powerful and fun way. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, right? My favorite verse of this entire story because there's food involved. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So what we need to see here, the father, he parties with joy. The father of the universe is the one who started partying, defined partying, and made partying awesome because lost becoming found is worth partying for. And is wrapped inside of this joy and celebration that my son was dead and now he's alive. My son was gone and now he's back. My son was forever distant and now he has returned. The father parties because of that. And I love this image because this image is an image of heaven meeting earth in a powerful way. This is what you and I are going to experience when we meet Jesus in eternity. And ultimately, a picture of what's happening when spiritually people go from lost to found, the angels are partying and celebrating and rejoicing in heaven because a son or daughter has returned. And I think about walking into that scene and the scene that comes to mind is just a table full of food, right? Get your Christmas feels up, right? That just looks good. Cinnamon rolls, fruits, probably some ham, some turkey inside of that, right? This feast that's taking place for the son's return. But ultimately, what's it point me to? This feast represents the feast of love relationally that the father invites us to take part in. Why? Because we just existed in a famine of fear. The younger son returns, and he returned with nothing, 
having nothing, in a deep need, a famine, a famine that was driven by fear and ultimately existed because of fear. And what the party represents is more than just a celebration. Yes, it does represent that. The father joys in the relationship returning. He joys in caring for the relationship and that he gets to foster this relationship with the son. But he also is making a promise in this. That as you and I exist in the Father's home, we get to feast on his love and his grace. And we don't have to be driven by the famine of fear that exists outside of that. And you and I, when we are not around the table with the Father, we go hungry all the time. Because we're trying to seek providing for ourselves where there's only famine. Fear drives us into famine because it's self-reliant and we cannot provide for what we need in and of ourselves. The Father's love does that around the table. And inside of this, he invites us to celebrate his love and his grace together. So where do we go with all this? Three really quick things. But for some of us, for some of us, we need to return home to the Father. That today you are here and you would relate to the younger son and you've been off while living and spending everything and all the resources, relationships, everything's spent, it's gone. And you need to return home to the father. For others of us, we're the older brother and we do all the right things, but we live in a state of competition, comparison, resentment, anger towards others because we're trying to earn something we can only receive. And that might exist in your church family, towards your church family, towards your real family, towards friends. You're trying to live this life in a way that will never satisfy. No matter where you're at, the Father invites you to return home, to make your way down the path because he wants to meet you halfway with his grace and his mercy. We say it here, say yes to Jesus. We're going to talk about this more next week, but the only way that you and I can actually return home is because the true son of God made his way from the father's side to us to invite us into relationship with his father and make us sons and daughters. That literally because of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, he is the one that met us in our lowest place and walks us into the Father's presence where the Father is joyfully running to us and wrapping his arms around us. And for some of you, you've lived in wild living, pleasure. You've lived inside of anger or resentment for too long. And this has just become monotonous. Just trying to do this to get a feeling or experience. And the Father is beyond a feeling or experience. He wants to meet you where you're at. Some of us are saying yes to Jesus. For others of us, the question I would ask is this, not returning home, but are you resting in the sinister's love? Are you resting in the Father's love? Listen, it's really easy for me to believe the Father's love, to say yes to Jesus, to do those things and to hear it but not trust it. And so I get back into the rhythm of working for the Father's love and trying to earn it. 
And here's the reality. Every night that I go to sleep and every morning I wake up, I exist in the Father's grace and love freely beyond anything that I've done. The Father loves me for who I am, and he loves having a relationship with me. That's what he desires. And I get to choose to rest in that every day to propel me into living life for him and with him. I'm reading a book right now. I just finished it yesterday called Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's a beautiful book about daily reminders and practices of spiritual truths. The lady that writes it writes this about grace and understanding our, our, the love God has for us. Each morning, those first tender moments, what she talks about is applying daily moments to spiritual truths. This is silly in some ways, but really powerful in others. She talks about the moment you wake up. This is what she says. Those first tender moments in simply being God's smelly, sleepy beloved. I again receive grace, life, and faith as a gift. Grace is a mystery and the joyful scandal of the universe. You are just as loved when you wake up in the morning and have done nothing as you are when you finish your work day and go to sleep. And our world does not share that same sentiment. You are loved to the amount that you produce during that day. Can you imagine setting a spiritual practice of waking up, which none of us want to see each other right at the beginning of the morning, right? It's ugly sometimes, smelly, hairs everywhere. You're not, you're not awake yet, right? And yet in that moment where you're incapable of producing anything, you are just as loved as the end of the day. Learning to rest in God's love is a practice and a rhythm that you and I are invited into all the time. Why? Because ultimately he wants relationship with us, but also he wants us to represent him to others. That's the last question. Are you representing the father's love to others? Representing the father to others. Here's reality. Every parent knows this. Every parent feels this, whether it's done perfectly or not is irrelevant, but every parent wants their kid to grow up and become an adult and to give back to the life and give back to good things and, and live out of the values that they instilled and investment they instilled, right? Every parent wants their kid to grow up and to go out into the world and demonstrate things that they taught them growing up. The father of the universe, the heavenly father, desires the same thing for you and I. Father doesn't just want us to reflect on being the younger son and the older son and just live inside of that he wants us to rest in his love so that we would go out and represent him to others. That how we work, how we play, how we do relationships would be that of the father to others. Henry Nouwen in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, would argue this is one of, if not the primary points of the story of the prodigal son. That we each have a chance in resting, returning, and then resting the father's love to represent and reflect the father's love in a beautiful way and in a world that is lost and homeless and does not exist inside of that love. You and I have the chance to grow up in the father's home and then go out to demonstrate that to others because you and I, when connected to Jesus and the Father's love through Jesus are tapped into something that motivates us to be something to others. This is what John writes in 1 John 4, 19. He says, perfect love casts out fear. And then he says, we live is the call. 
Listen, love is the call on our lives to love God and love others. And the only way that you and I will know how to perfectly love is to reflect upon the love that he first gave to us. We only know love because he first loved us. Inside of this, personally, we get a chance to be the father to younger sons and older sons inside of our life. What if you chose not to smack them down because they're not doing the things that you know to do or push them aside or dismiss them? What if you decide to run into them? Why? Because the father ran into you. What if you decided to meet someone halfway and to wrap your arms around them and then bring them to the porch of welcome, both literally and figuratively, because the Father loved you. Jesus says this in Luke 6, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. It can be translated, be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. What if we ask the Father to not only grace us with his love and his mercy, but what if we ask the Father to move us internally in such a way that forces us to see what he sees and do what he does in a unique way? How beautiful would that be personally? But listen, have you ever seen this space as a home? A home where we as a church get to reflect the Father to those around us. Have you ever thought about Sunday mornings not as a service, but a home that we enter into to rest in the reminder of God's grace and love and compassion through singing, through teaching, through being with each other. And we get a chance every day to invite people into that in different ways so that the lost would be found, so that the homeless would have a home, so that the fatherless would end up having a father through who? Not us, Jesus. Because Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And before you go to what is going to happen this afternoon or go to what is going to take place this evening, I want you just to reflect upon this story. We just ended with arguably the main character. The main character making a move towards us that we don't deserve, I would argue, or even understands. What would it look like for you today to not just walk away with facts, information, neat notes that you took, but what if you were to leave today resting in the fact that the Father loves you and desires a relationship with you and wants to form you in that every day after this. You're his child. What if you exited the prison of fear and lived in the home of love? What if you exited carrying your baggage of guilt and were covered by his grace? What if you were able to celebrate in joy and not in fear? If you were to actually believe you're a child of the Father and He invites you into so much more. Father, we thank you. You are God, you are King, you are Lord. Thank you for meeting us where we're at. Thank you for your grace in that, your love in that, your peace in that, for your goodness in that. Finds what we even 
so, so, so good to us beyond what we even think about on a daily basis, and yet you meet us. You meet us on the road that is pitiful and dirty and messy, and we thank you for that. Father, would you encourage each of us in here to meet you, to return home, to rest, and to ultimately reflect you to others. Thank you, Father. And our singing is a response to you.